Welcome to the Entrepreneur Cast, your source for tactical lessons in entrepreneurship from a cast of entrepreneurs. I'm Jason Demers. And I'm Sam McRoberts. And today we're going to talk about life advice that we would give to our younger selves. This will be fun. I, I think about this. I think about this a lot. And to be fair, I'm not thinking so much about what I would have said to my younger self, but more along the lines of trying to get to... I don't know, a core set of truths and principles and mental models that will serve me well going forward. But that I, at the same time, like I recognize that if I had, if I had all of this earlier, it would have been very useful. So I guess if I could go back in time, there's a lot of things that I would take back and and pass along and save some damn time. (laughs) So, I mean, I agree. And I've been thinking about, you know, for the whole, for the last, for this whole past week, I've been thinking about what advice I would give to my younger self sort of in preparation for, for our show today. Um, Do you, when you think about your younger self, is there like an age that you picture yourself as for like, what age are you (laughs) where you're giving yourself this advice? I would say probably mid to late teens. I mean, I really, I squandered a lot of high school just fucking around Mm -hmm. and right essentially maybe a year after high school, I got kind of sucked back into religion and ended up going on a mission. And that like, there's just, there's a lot of years there that were not spent as fruitfully as I, as I would have liked. So are, are you saying that you would give yourself the advice to, to not do that mission? To be honest, I'm not entirely sure. I do think there was there was some value in doing that. I absolutely learned some things from it, and I still I still draw from it today in various aspects. But I I also have a sense that I could have used that entire time frame from probably probably 14 to 25. I think I could have done a tremendous number of things differently that would put me far far ahead of where I am now. And I would, I would make some suggestions. All right, let's hear it. Why don't you start? Because I've got, I've got like nine things that I came up with over this past week that I wrote down for advice I would right. give to myself. So what about you? What, why don't you start? So I, the number one, and this is a quote from Andrew Carnegie, it is reality is negotiable. Everything, you look around you, you look at what people tell you, how things are, how things are, how things are supposed to be, like all of this stuff that flows at you. And the fact of the matter is that an enormous portion of reality is negotiable. Maybe all of it, but at least an enormous portion. And there's so much that we end up doing by autopilot that we never we never question. Like, why do why do we do this? Why do humans do this? Why is it done this way? How could I do it differently? And there's a tremendous amount of pushback. So you have to be the sort of person who can move through the friction of others trying to keep you on the on the tracks, essentially. But if you can escape that, if you can leave, uh, if you can reach escape velocity in terms of exiting the crowd and start to approach reality as highly negotiable, God, it opens a lot of doors. <laughs> can you give me an example of like where you, you wish that you had been thinking at the moment reality is negotiable? Well, so, you know, as a kid, you're taught, you you go to school, you try and get good grades, you try and get into college, like, there's this plan, this plan that is essentially pushed onto everybody as if this is somehow the magically optimal plan for everyone. And the vast majority of people just kind of fall in line. Like, if you can afford to go to college, or a lot of people, even if you can't, you go. And if you don't know what you want to study, well, I guess you just study something. And you, you follow this roadmap and unfortunately, it's a roadmap that was, I, I think it was thoughtfully designed, but not for the benefit of the individual. And it, it's a trap. It's a trap. And if I, I would have done a lot of things differently had I not realized just how much of a trap it was. So you followed the, the, the model, the it's go to school. Kinda. Okay. Uh, yeah. So a, a little out of order. So I got out of high school. I worked for a year because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Then I ended up going on a mission. That was two years. And then probably a year and a half, maybe almost two years after that, like I just, I came back from the mission. I worked for a while and eventually with sufficient pressure from enough people, I finally caved and went to college. 
And I was only in college for two semesters and a term before I was like, yeah, I was right. This is fucking bullshit and it's a waste of my time. And, you know, wh- even while I was in college, I'd started, I'd started working. Like I got a job working at a, like I was helping my mom run her eBay business for part of it. And then I got a job working at a small agency. And then I got a job working at a bigger agency after that. And it turned out that college was essentially useless at least for the the path that I wanted to take. Like I always had kind of an entrepreneurial bent. So I should have just listened to my gut and tried to start a business right out of the gate and not played that game. You know, that's a good segue because you just kind of touched on two of my life lessons. So one of mine is that high school and college really don't matter that much. In fact, I, I would say that more than anything, I probably only just, I had fun experiences in high school and college, but in terms of what I actually learned, uh, I've probably forgotten most of it. Like I, I, you know, all the advanced math and shit. There's actually been studies on that. By the end of a four-year college degree, you retain at best about 10% of the information you took in. And if that isn't actively used over the next few years, that's gone too. I think it gave me some experience in working with people, working in teams, figuring out a little bit, learning maybe about myself as a person and what my tendencies were. For instance, you know, at, at University of Washington, I was often in uh, groups of, of students where we would work on projects together and somebody has to be the leader of the, of the team and has to drive everybody and motivate everyone forward. And that usually was me. And so I learned a little bit about myself. Didn't you already know that about yourself from your time playing Counter-Strike and Asheron's Call? And like yeah, you knew you were a leader, you knew you were a strategist. Yeah. I mean, if anything, maybe it, maybe it honed my ability to lead an in-person group or, or team better because my, mm. my, my gaming career was all sort of done over the internet voice and text. So maybe it was when you're in person, you know, that maybe it honed that skill, but in terms of actual skills that I learned, God, you know, very few of them stick, stick with me today. Or, or do I feel that I use them? Same. I I can't remember. There's very, very few things from my time at school. I remember a little bit of a course I took in Hebrew, which was interesting. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Cause I was religious at the time. I wanted to better understand the actual original intent of biblical language. And so I was really interested in the, the root of that. So I took a class on biblical Hebrew, and then I remember a like a philosophy class. It was a it was a sub for a math class. I didn't really want to take any more math, so I took philosophy, and that was that was interesting. I, I still use bits and pieces of that, but not much. I like I honestly didn't pay a hell of a lot of attention. Like I hated it. I hated yeah. college. I felt like I was being forced to take a bunch of pointless classes because somebody had them on a checklist and it's like, man, fuck y'all. It was a waste of my time and money. So I tried really hard in college and, you know, I got pretty decent grades and all that. Did the whole four year thing, got my bachelor's degree in business. And I really don't know that it had any effect on my life other than it got me, it helped me get my first job. But at what cost? If you look at what what my tuition was for four years, I I don't even know, (laughs) you know, probably in the realm of like, $80,000, if not more. I I really don't even know. My parents paid my tuition. I was very lucky. And so... I would, I would imagine maybe 80 to a hundred K for four years of college uh, at at a public university. Now that to get me into my first job, which paid me, my starting salary was $42,000 a year. So was it worth it? I mean, I worked at that company for two and a half years. So I think that all the money I made in that entire two and a half years maybe equaled (laughs) the amount of tuition that my parents paid. Not after tax. Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> not, not ever, no, you're right. All right, okay. So, so when I say that it's a trap, I I actually mean that in a very literal way. So, I I'm of the opinion that K through 12 education is designed essentially as a combination of state sponsored babysitting and brainwashing, and high school in particular. They're not. They're not trying to teach you how to be an entrepreneur or the best version of you. Like you're being conditioned to sit in an office for eight hours a day and do mind-numbing things because that's mostly what the the world seems to need. And like the people who do the jobs that don't fit that bill are going to either drop out or drop into that after anyway. And so it, it's not it's not engineered to maximize your potential. And then college. College, in fact, I think is quite different. I think the reason that you're funneled into it right out of high school is so that you will accrue a significant amount of debt and thus be forced to work. Because student loans are one of the few forms of debt that simply can't be discharged. 
And I, I believe it's intended to trap you into a cycle of debt. So you're forced to work. You're forced to participate in the economy. Possible. Possible. I mean, I, I don't think, I, I don't know how many high school and college listeners we have, but I think if I was going to speak directly to them and give you advice, I would say the advice I would give to myself is I thought it mattered a lot more than it actually did. I don't think that you should necessarily drop out. I'm not saying that. I think that you need to get yourself a safety net and you you know you should you should approach things strategically. Um, but I sure as hell thought that my life and death depended on my grades and depended on me doing well on this test tomorrow and studying enough for this quiz and pulling all nighters so that I would do well on this test or whatever. Well, looking back, it really just only mattered for literally one thing in my life. And that was getting my first job. After that, my, my other jobs depended on my previous job. <laughs> they didn't depend on college. Sure. That was it. Well, it's, it's, it's this, it's that gatekeeping bullshit and it's self-reinforcing because somebody gets a degree and they have to, use, that, that degree is the key that unlocks the gate to that first salary job. Mm-hmm. And then going forward, they have to justify it. And so often, I think just without even thinking about it, they simply apply the same heuristic. Well, if I needed a degree to have this job, so does anybody I hire. And they just go forward and forward and forward. And so it perpetuates. And in some cases, it's probably consciously done. It's like, well, if I had to do it, so do you. And in some cases, it's probably just elitist. Like, well, I went to this fancy school and I feel like I'm better than you. So I only want people who also went to this fancy school to work for me, which you see a lot in venture capital. And it's just another form of bullshit. Yeah. You know, but, but if there is something that I think is a highly valuable skill that you learn while in college and and granted, you don't have to learn this while in college, you can learn this not in college, but that would be to learn to code. I wish I had learned to code. And in fact, I took a class of JavaScript 101 or whatever the hell it was at at UW. And (laughs) I did take that class and it kicked my ass. I, I, I was in a class with probably 250 other students. And I remember on the first day of class, the, the instructor said, uh, only 1% of you in this class right now are going to go on to become co- you know, professional devs or coders in your career. The other 99% of you, this is essentially a waste of time. Sorry. Sorry, Jesus. just being honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I was like, holy shit, this guy's, this guy's, he's keeping it real, right? And so, yeah, it kicked my ass. I spent more time on that class than any other class. And I was only able to, I think I could get like a 2.4, you know, out of a 4.0 in that class, which is like a C or something. And that's with the benefit of having my TA. So this is kind of embarrassing, but it's the truth that nonetheless, I was in a fraternity my first year and my TA, my teacher's assistant was actually a guy just down the hall from me in my frat. And so him and I, I would often just walk over to his room and say, Hey man, help me out. Like, can I get some private freaking tutoring? And he would help me out. And even with that help, I was still only able to be a mediocre, to do mediocre in that class. So I, so I mean, I picked up HTML and CSS, a little bit of JavaScript on my own. I've dabbled, I've dabbled in other stuff. Like I've tried picking up Python and R and Hmm. I don't know if I have the temperament for code. Like it requires a tremendous amount of a desire to sit and focus and tinker and solve uh, a problem in a very particular type of way. I just, I don't know if I have the patience for that. I like thinking about things, Mm -hmm. but I don't like, (laughs) I don't like that, or at least I haven't, but maybe, maybe I just haven't gone about learning it the right way, or maybe I haven't been scratching my own itch. Cause I'm convinced for most things you'll, you'll learn it just fine if you have uh, a good reason to do so. So for example, if like you want nothing more than to create some video game that you have a, a clear vision of how to do it, or some piece of software that you wish existed and didn't, now you have the motivation to pick it up and maybe scratch your own, scratch your own itch. But I think for most people, yeah. Well, I wish I could code because, you know, my, my business email analytics is a software business and I can't do shit. I can't, I have to hire out the the, yeah. the dev. Right. And that's very expensive. Devs are expensive. That's why I say, I wish I had learned to code. I could have, I could have been doing it myself and saved a ton of money, but you know, I didn't. So that's just one thing that I'll, for, for my life, I'll have to always outsource. But it's like my professor said, only 1% of us are wired according to him to, to be, to do this. And he said, you're either wired to do it or you aren't. 
And uh, apparently I wasn't. So, you know, I've, I've come to accept that. Anyway, for I, me, I, another one that I think I, I wish I had realized is that nothing is impossible. And again, I think this ties back to the first, right? But like, you'll hear a lot, that's impossible. You can't do that. We don't do things that way. Nothing's actually impossible. I mean, even physics isn't fully fleshed out. We don't actually understand the full nature of the universe. We There's so many things that are still blanks in our, our knowledge map. And so understanding that something that other people think is impossible may actually be a fantastic place to start poking, that could have been that could have been really useful as well. And now now I do that. I do that all the time. I, I in fact whenever I hear somebody say that's impossible, I kinda hone in on it like, oh is it really? Let's uh let's poke at this a little bit because I don't I don't buy that. But you're you're a skeptic. I mean you're you're a thinker and I mean very much. We, we both are. But can you can you give me an example of of any recent time you can think of where where you sort of said, aha, is that or is that not impossible? And then you you sort of dove in. <laughs> well, I mean, I've heard plenty of people say the idea of UFOs is impossible. It's kind of been a rabbit hole recently. And clearly, clearly it's not. I mean, it's not impossible, but you hear that. And I think, I actually think a lot of times when somebody says it's impossible, it's not that they actually believe it's impossible. It's that in some way that thing conflicts with their pre-existing beliefs. And so it's impossible is their way, you know, their way of expressing cognitive dissonance. Like I can't, I can't believe this. I don't want to accept that it's possible. I think that's more common, but some things, some things that come to mind would be like faster than light travel, right? You know, Einstein initially, Hey, speed, speed of speed of light, hard limit can't go any faster. And then we find that, in fact, there are uh, some exceptions, a variety of exceptions. Neutrinos go faster than the speed of light. Under certain conditions, photons can also go faster than the speed of light. And we, if you potentially bend space and time, things can travel faster than the speed of light. Quantum entanglement, things can travel faster. So like, what was once impossible eventually becomes possible if you poke yeah, at it enough. I'm pretty sure gravity waves also travel faster. And and you can move from point A to point B through essentially bending space-time so that you are traveling a shorter distance. Uh, in a, it's sort of like folding a piece of paper and, and poking a pinhole through the, two, uh, through the two sort of planes of paper. And when you unfold the paper, the, the, the pinholes can be on opposite sides of the paper. But once you fold the paper, the pinholes are, are right next to each other. Like that's the sort but of again, the, right? Like. Yeah, like space space-time is a model that fits within the equation, but it's not something that we can verify the existence of. Like we can't say, ah, this is this is space. And oh yeah, and this here, this is time. Like those are not they they plug in, but they're not validated, I guess, mm-hmm. other than other than through the mathematical model. But yeah, I just I, I have this sense that there are probably very, very, very few things, if any, that are genuinely impossible. And I think there are a lot of things where you'll hear that. So I guess I guess what I would go back and tell my younger self is whenever you hear the words, the word impossible, look very, very closely because there's probably something interesting there. So how do you think that could have uh, imp- or would have improved your your life had you had that info? Like, did you turn down an opportunity or something because you dismissed something as impossible? I think I I might have gone down different rabbit holes had I had that mental framework. I, you know, at this point, I'm an open-minded skeptic. I'm very curious. I'm a philosopher. I poke at everything. I was not that way as a kid. As a kid, I was very resistant to authority. I didn't accept that, you know, if somebody said, well, you have to do this or this is how it is, like, I didn't automatically accept that. But I also didn't poke very far out of the out of the mainstream. It didn't even cross my mind. And so I don't know. This is this is one of those things that I'm inclined to believe that if I'd had this mental framework at a younger age, I might have done very, very different things. But I have no way of knowing what different things. You might have sort of taken different paths, exposed yourself to different scenarios and opportunities, and perhaps maybe fast tracked whatever path you're you're now on is that kind of sure yeah so 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 scientifically right like it, it is very taboo to talk about something like anti-gravity can't do mm-hmm. it not possible right maybe maybe as a kid if i'd have been interested in something like that and i'd have had that framework I'd be like who says it's not possible maybe I'd, I'd have spent the last 25 years poking at that and solved it like i don't know and i i don't like 
I don't like limited thinking. I don't like fixed mindset thinking. And so I think having a growth mindset, a mindset of impossible is bullshit. If I believe it can be done, I'm going to poke at it until I figure it out. I think that would have been a useful framework to have. That makes sense. I like that. Well, I'll go. One of my life lessons that I wish I could give to my younger self is to just give less fucks about what people think and just go with your gut. Yeah. Now you, you mentioned earlier, uh, you said, you know, just go with your gut and and that kind of ties in here with what I'm talking about. I used to care too much about what other people would think, you know, going back to high school, it's all about, you know, am I, am I cool? Am I cool enough? And everything, everything, your world is so small, you know, at certain times in your life. And it, it's not just high school. It can just be, it can be, even if you've just sort of got a tight knit cl- close group of close friends or something and, and you, maybe haven't traveled a lot and and your world is small, you really give a lot of fucks about what other people think. Well, that can hold you back. It can hold you down. Once you stop giving fucks about what people think about you and you trust your gut and you take risks, which is sort of another of my life lessons that I'll just tie together with this one, new opportunities open up. You really start to feel free. You start to feel like you're living your life. You start to feel like you are accomplishing things that that care that you care about that matter to you. So yeah, I cared too much about what other people thought. And, um, I think you know, most my, people do. my, my wife, Brittany was telling me, cause I was talking with her yesterday while we were, we were taking a walk and I was telling her about our topic for the show today. And I said, what are some life lessons you, you wish? And she, she told me a story about how, when she was, uh, when she was a kid, she was so scared that everybody would, uh, they were on the playground and they were, all the kids were playing kickball and she, she really wanted to play kickball because it looked fun, but she was so scared that she wouldn't be good at it, that she was so scared that she didn't play. And she actually cried because she felt so much pressure. You know, what if, what if I, I don't kick the ball very well, or what if other people laugh at me? Well, eventually she overcame her fear you know, as a kid and she, she started to play kickball and she loved it and she got really, really good at kickball and it became one of her favorite playground games. And she looks back now and she says, it's so silly that I, I was so afraid to do this thing I wanted to do because I was so afraid other people would, would think I wasn't good at it. And granted that's, that's a lesson learned as a child, but I think that many people don't learn that lesson ever in their life, even as adults. And so it, it's so important. Yeah. I mean, have you got any anecdotes that are, that are like that, Sam? You- I've actually, I've actually thought about that in particular a lot. Like we evolved to be social creatures. And so a great many of the things that we do on autopilot just stem from that evolutionary quirk. And it's stupid. <laughs> you, at least in modern society, right? Like we still act like we're living in small groups in caves and it's ridiculous. And it just doesn't, it doesn't apply. Like we have the benefits of a very large tribe without having to play those sorts of games, at least for the most part. And you can, you can choose to extricate yourself from that layer of, of bullshit. And it's very freeing. Like, I I don't care. I don't care what other people think about me because I'm not, I don't live my life for other people. Like I live my life for me. I care about what I'm doing because it's what I want to do or what I think is the right thing to do, but I'm not looking for outside approval. Because I, I don't, I guess I don't trust anybody else's judgment in that regard. And at the end of the day, I buy into what Naval Ravikant has said, which is life is a, a single player game. And I treat it, I treat it that way. It doesn't mean I don't care about anyone else or anything else, but it means that I am, I'm, I'm playing this like a single player game. Like I'm going through it along my path mm-hmm. and nobody else can tell me what my path is because that's for me to determine. I like that. Yeah. And, you know, just, just going along with that, give, give less fucks. And that also means taking, taking more risks. Uh, and I mentioned this earlier, but you have to take risks because failure is not only okay, it's often a good thing. I think that some of the biggest lessons I've learned in life have been from my failures and granted, <laughs> I wish I had failed a little less severely <laughs> in, in certain <laughs> cases, but, uh, you know, we can't wind back the clock. So all I can do is, is give advice to other people and say, um, you know what, it all turned out okay. And this goes back to, I think I mentioned this already, but nothing is ever as bad as it initially seems. Did I mention this one? I don't think so. Okay. So, so this is another life lesson then coming in hot. Nothing is ever as bad as it initially seems. So if you're feeling stressed, just calm down, but also nothing is ever as good as it seems either. So 
try to manage your, you know, your highs and your lows. When I have taken risks and failed, sometimes I thought my world was ending. You know, I've, I've described a story several times on our podcast, Sam, about how, you know, seven or eight years ago, I was in a bad, bad financial position with my company and I sort of melted down and sort of spilled my woes onto Brit and, and told her how, you know, how things were not going well. And then the next day I had to fire most of my company. You know, I, I've, I thought that was the end of my world, but you know what? <laughs> it turned out to be the best thing that my company needed. It was exactly what my company needed. After cutting staff, my company was able to really flourish. Revenue increased, efficiency increased, profits, costs went way down. My stress completely lifted off of my shoulders. My relationship with my girlfriend, now wife, it vastly improved and life got better. And so I thought my world was ending, but in reality, I just had to go through a failure in order to get to the other side. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, it, it was, it was good. It was okay. It wasn't as bad as it seemed. In fact, it was almost a blessing in disguise. And I've been through numerous situations where I thought, you know, I've, I've faced failure and it turns out just fine. And I, and countless times in my life, I've felt so stressed out. I couldn't sleep. I was shaking with nervousness and anxiety and it all turned out okay. It always did. It always does. And I try to t- I try to remind myself that still when I go through those those feelings because we're all human and we're all going to feel that stuff. We can't just not feel those feelings. But I try to remind myself it always has worked out and it always will. It's why I like Tim Ferriss's whole fear setting exercise because like in your mind fears get really big. And again, it's another evolutionary thing, right? We didn't we didn't evolve to optimize everything. We evolved for survival primarily. Mm-hmm. And so something that is fearful is more likely to survive than something that is not. So the fear the fear trait evolved very strongly in us. But unfortunately, your mind blows things out of proportion. So you may be thinking, oh my God, it's the end of the world. This is like on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the worst that could happen. This is a fucking 11. And in reality, if you really poke poke at it and start picking it apart and step back a little bit, you realize, oh, it's actually like a three. I guess it's not that bad. I can get over that. And you do. And actually taking time to dig into your goals and your fears and understanding what the real number for each thing is, and then putting pieces in place to kind of balance it out, you know, setting up that asymmetric risk reward we've talked about previously. It's like, all right, well, I think right now this would be a, a maybe a four. And if I put these two pieces in place, it's really like a two. And the potential upside is like a nine. So that's worth it. Like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to put these pieces in place and I'm going to go for it. And if I fail, at least I took a shot at a nine. That I think is a much better approach, but it it requires you actually like facing and working your way through fear, which is really hard, really hard. It reminds me of uh, every time I ever, whenever I go to the horse races, I like to bet on the horses, but the bet that I like to make is I like to bet a low amount of money on an extremely unlikely scenario because so what I do is I'll bet like a dollar and I'll bet it on some scenario. So like, let's say the, the, the four worst horses come in in a specific order of like, you know, one, three, two, four, something (laughs) like that. Very unlikely. However, if I win the bet, just a $1 bet, the payout is like a thousand dollars. And nice. that that's my favorite bet to make because the risk is so low, but the reward is so high that, there you go. It, that that's how I sort of put that practice into play. And for me, I, I, you know, it's not necessarily about winning, but it's about the anticipation of winning. And it's about knowing that when I lost, well, all I lost was a dollar. So I don't give a fuck. <laughs> you know, I, I paid $4 for that popcorn. So I'm cool with losing a buck on the horse race. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, that's that's actually essentially though the same mindset behind playing the lotto. You know, you're risking a dollar or two or five or ten for a potential multi hundred million dollar upside. Same concept. And I guess like if you have the money to spare, go for it. It's a it's a unlikely scenario, but eh, you you get that mental that mental upside thinking about like what if, and you never know. I mean, long like. 
long odds events occur all the time. So yeah, yeah, why not? yeah. I I only buy lotto tickets when the jackpot starts getting so high that it starts making the news and people start getting yeah. hyped about it. So Same. I remember a few a few <laughs> years back that I think it reached I don't know like a billion, billion or two billion change. something yeah, like that. Yeah. And uh, Kevin was like you know, Hey, let's all just buy tickets just for shits and giggles because it's, you know, it's just why not the value of, of paying five bucks for a ticket and then having the next, you know, several weeks to maybe even a month or two, as this thing keeps going up of anticipating and dreaming and hoping, you know, thinking, what, what would I do if I won the thoughts that it gives you and sort of like the mental, like geek, as we say <laughs> is worth the five bucks. And that's really all that you that you want out of it. You're not expecting to win, but yeah, they're they're. I guess in a way, playing the lotto can be smart if it gives you those positive feelings uh, and, and sort of joy and anticipation. And if you can buy that for five bucks for a few weeks or a few months, sure. Fucking, fucking it's a, I it. mean, it, it's just another. It's either another tool or a toy. Like you can choose. Yeah. You can choose how you use it. It doesn't have to be anything, anything more than that. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, you go to Vegas, like you're taking a trip, you're going to have fun. You set aside a specific amount of money that's for your entertainment. And if you blow it gambling, it's part of your entertainment. It's no different than paying a couple hundred bucks to go see a concert. Like you have an experience, you have memories, you had fun. Like it's just a, just think of it as an entertainment expense as long as you can afford to do it. it makes sense. Yeah, I completely agree. And this this kind of segues in, unless you had more to say, this kind of segues no, into the next... I- well, if it segues into yours, go to yours because I was going to take right. like a hard right turn. <laughs> okay. So it kind of segues into my next life lesson, which is travel often. And I think you can probably, you, you, I'm probably preaching to the choir, Sam, if, if, if I'm talking to you on this. So I'm talking to our listeners, but travel often because you never know when you won't be able to because of health, finances, work, or other circumstances. COVID. <laughs> or COVID. Yeah. I, I just saw a headline today, Sam, that the EU has uh, banned US citizens to, from traveling there. Yeah, I'll have to. I, I don't know if they pa- did they pass it. I know that they were talking about doing that, and I'll have to look into the specifics because that may affect my options. I mean, I'm in I'm in Europe, and I typically bounce around from country to country with my wife and kid. But we're in a different scenario, so I, I'm not sure if their ban is going to block people flying in from the U.S. Like that make that makes sense. But you know, we travel. We've been here in Europe for two and a half years. We haven't been back to the U.S. We haven't been to Asia. Like only here in Europe, two and a half years. And we travel by land borders, which are usually different. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that by the time our stay is done where we are currently, that we'll be able to shift back into an EU country. But I guess we'll see. What country are you in now? Serbia. (laughs) All right. This is going to become a thing. Our listeners are going to be like, yeah, what country is Sam in for this episode? So where's Waldo? Where's Waldo? Yeah. So you've, you've been in uh, Croatia. Up until now, That's right. Right? yeah, it was in Croatia before, and yeah, I've been been all over. At this point, you know, Serbia was somewhere that was on our list to visit, but it wasn't really high on our list. And really, we're here because it's the only place that was open by land from Croatia. We prefer to travel over land borders whenever we can because flying sucks, especially during COVID. You don't want to get on an especially airplane during right COVID. Now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we'll see. We'll see what our see what our options are the next time we have to bounce. We don't have to shift places until like September. So we'll right. see. So I know that you're you're a world traveler. Uh, you know, you like like I've mentioned before. I think you've been in like 20 countries over the past three years or something like that. And it's, it's uh, like 14 or 15. But yeah, right. a lot. Pretty awesome. I I myself love to travel as well. I, I feel like my my best life experiences memories come from travel, and I. I hear and see from a lot of people who, you know, say, well, I can't travel because I, I got to work or I got a kid or whatever, whatever the deal is. And I think that travel just gives you so much perspective and it gives you experience and it gives you gosh, rich culture. And uh, it, it really, God, what are, what are some words to describe, Sam? Help me out. What are some words to describe what travel does for you? How does it benefit you other than... I mean, we've talked me- about it a little bit previously, but yeah. I, I just I think in so many minds, it is, in so many ways, it is expanding, like mind expanding. You see yeah, a different like way, that. different way of living, a different way of governing, different way of life and you see different places. You can sample different lifestyles. Like it's... 
it's a wonderful form of novelty, but it also gets you out of your bubble. And like for us, you know, traveling around Europe, we've realized a lot of things, a lot of the way that things are done in the US, it's not the only way. It doesn't have to be that way. There's other ways to do stuff. And it's like, huh, that's interesting. But at the same time, you see how similar a lot of things are. Like people all over the place are essentially the same. They care about the same things. They do mostly the same things. And it's also very unifying. You get to see that, hey, these imaginary camps of whether it's skin color or country or whatever, like whatever, whatever bucket you're putting yourself in, like those buckets are stupid. Like we're all humans. We share a planet. We're flying through space at whatever ridiculous speed, 50,000 miles an hour or something. Like it's dude. Yeah. It puts a lot of things into perspective. It shows you that you're a part of a large whole and a lot of bullshit just kind of shrinks into the background. I like that. I I think I was really looking for the word perspective. Yeah. It it really gives you a new perspective on your own life and where we are in the universe. I almost get the same feeling when I, whenever I just go stargazing because I I look up at the stars and I realize how, how, how insignificant and small we are. And I'm not saying that I feel like that when, when I'm traveling, but, but I get a different perspective on life and people and problems uh, and societies when I'm traveling. And and so it can also be a really good pattern break. Like you don't, you don't realize what sort of ruts you've settled into until you break them. Yeah. And it can be a really good opportunity to break all your ruts and let you examine the habits and patterns and decide like, Hey, you know, maybe I actually don't need to keep that one or maybe I can do it this way instead. That's it's very useful for that. Yeah. And I was just thinking, you know, it can also give you different perspectives of not just uh, how things are now, but how things once were. So I've done a lot of sightseeing and tourism as I've traveled. For instance, I've gone and seen like the Roman Forum and seen the ruins there. And um, yeah. I've seen the Acropolis in Greece, you know, in Athens. Um, and I've, I've been to Mayan temples and I've climbed, uh, you know, Mayan pyramids and shit like that. And that's it, cool. Yeah. And it tells you, I mean, as you're doing that stuff, you're like, holy shit, these civilizations existed thousands of years ago. And, you know, these, these are real houses. These are real streets. Here's a real water fountain that how many millions of people over the, over the ages have, have drink, have drinking from this stone water fountain. You know, what, what sorts of commerce and market activity happened here? Um, in Pompeii, you know, before the volcano erupted and killed everybody instantly. And like the kinds of thoughts and feelings you get while you're moving about and seeing those kinds of things gives you perspective, not just about how things are now, but how things once were and how many people have come before us, how many civilizations, how many things have happened before us in our little tiny drop of a bucket that we're living and experiencing today. Like I love it. It expands your mind and it you makes can also you just think go watch, uh, go watch cosmos. Same thing. <laughs> yes. I love that. I love cosmos. There's another show like called, three uh, times. yes. Th- and there's another show called, uh, how the universe works, which is a great one too. It's probably on your DVR or you can probably on demand. If you check that I'll out have to check that one out. I don't think I've seen that. Now the cosmos you're talking about, that's the Neil deGrasse Tyson one, right? Yeah, or, or, I you know this may be blasphemy, but I didn't really like the Carl Sagan one as much. Okay. I like Neil deGrasse Tyson version better. Okay, same here. So I actually didn't I didn't watch the Carl Sagan one, uh, but I loved the Neil deGrasse Tyson one. I thought he did a great job. I could go back and watch that again. That that is just a fa- fantastic, fantastic. Might show. be time for a rewatch. I wa- yep. <laughs> I watched that uh, a couple times on various psychedelics, dude. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I watched it. I watched it on LSD and on psilocybin, and it's it's absolutely a mind fuck while you're you're on that stuff. <laughs> really puts things into perspective. But this, uh, it's a little bit it's a little bit of a segue, but it brings me kind of to one of my other points. So when you're thinking about the past and the present and these different places where you're living, you become very mindful of traditions. And one of the lessons I wish I'd really thought through carefully when I was younger is this. Traditions are dangerous, and so you need to be mindful of them. Having them is fine, but following them blindly is foolish. And I think we follow a tremendous number of traditions and habits and routines blindly without pausing to question why we do those things. And I just, I, there's, there's so much there. 
I I think every tradition should be questioned. And again, it, like it's it's fine. It's fine to have traditions. Traditions can be very fun, but they're also a form of chains. Like they they trap you without your conscious awareness. And I don't think anything that does that is should go unexamined. So correct me if I'm wrong, but when I think of tradition, then the first kind of tradition that comes to mind is like Christmas trees. Now, if, as sure. I recall, I believe you have actually educated me, although I've now forgotten, <laughs> yeah. which is why I am <laughs> I'm not trying to put you on the spot. But what's what's the actual origin of Christmas trees and why are they a tradition now? So they were they were worshipped by a cult called the Ashira cult, and they would decorate trees because of you know their their mystical beliefs about the trees. And so the the Catholic Church was trying to rope in all the pagans, and so they started making essentially like concessions and modifications and setting up holidays to try and bring these people in. So they created Christmas, they declared it the the birth of Christ, they gave it a date that was really close to Saturnalia, which was a pagan tradition. It was quite quite the riotous festival, but it involved things like decorating trees and giving gifts. And so they just kind of wrapped this all into a new holiday that was about Jesus instead and bundled it, bundled it up in a new package. So I guess you could say the Catholic church was one of the earliest marketing firms <laughs> Wow, taking, taking, taking something and kind of rolling it out in a new way. But yeah, the, the, the is interesting but this right it could be it could be tradition it could be religious tradition it could be a family tradition it could be a social tradition there's a lot there's a lot of things that are just done and again because we're social creatures and we tend to behave kind of like herd animals we usually just fall into that rut and if you try and get out of the ruts everybody tries and shoves you back in place or gives you shit for it so it can be very difficult to extricate yourself from traditions but they should they should all be examined. Like, what is the value that this adds? Is this a waste of time or effort? Is this trapping me in some way? Is this teaching me bad things? Is this a bad tradition? Like, what are the traditions that you participate in? And you should seriously question them. And I, I wish I'd have thought of that more at a younger at a younger age. And I poked at some. I was very resistant to religion when in my like early to mid mid-teens. Like I was raised in a very religious family. I was forced to go to church. I was forced to attend seminary. And because I was forced, I was very, I was very resistant to it. But I wish I'd have thought of it from a more robust framework and not simply from the perspective of, I don't like being forced to do stuff. This is stupid. <laughs> I gotcha. So would you say that, that sort of examining tradition would have helped you in the sense of like, maybe you wouldn't have wasted time at church <laughs> or is there, yeah, some, well, is there, Sure, I might have I might have resisted it harder. I might have you know poked at it in a different way or come up with different ways to go about extricating myself from it. I may have, I don't know. But I mean, there's a lot, right? Like I've talked a few times about a few different traditions. It could be religion or school. Like school is a tradition. College is a tradition. Religion is a tradition. Getting a getting a job and working a typical forty hour week, forty years of grinding away, retire at a certain age. Like all of these are these are traditions. A tradition is essentially any pattern that you're pushed into without a lot of conscious thought. And there's, there's tons of them. So Ash and I have been talking lately about like, what are, what are some of these things that you wouldn't think to poke at? So one of the ones I've been poking at is beds. Like why do beds look the way they do? You know, basically everybody sleeps in essentially the same position on the same sort of material, like all over the world. But why is that actually the optimal way for the human body to sleep laying on your back or your side on a bed? Like what, what are the other ways you could do it? It's like, all right, well, you could do it in a hammock. You could sleep on, uh, I guess you could sleep in water or some sort of a flotation device. Like, but, but, you know, we do things a certain way and we just always have. And so we do, and we never stop to think about it. Or another one would be a tradition we're starting to poke at and do some research on, Ash is testing it. Why, one, why do we wash our hair the way we do, right? Using chemicals to strip away the body's natural oils. Like, is that actually, is it actually ideal? What if you only rinse your hair with water periodically? What if you allow those natural oils to strengthen and heal your hair? Like you keep it clean by rinsing, but you're not applying soaps and detergents and things that can affect your scalp and your hair in like damaging ways. And so the question is, 
what marketer, you know, because this is my guess. My guess is a marketer came along and decided, you know what, I'm going to make shampoo a thing and I'm going to push everybody to use it. I'm going to make up all these stories to explain why they should. And then it's become going to become a habit and then a tradition. And then it's just going to stick around forever. Nobody questions it. Same thing for going to the dentist. Like, do you really need to go in for a checkup twice a year? If you're, if you're careful about your diet, you don't eat a lot of sugar, you take very good care of your teeth, is that necessary? My guess is probably not, but it certainly serves the dentists to have people, you know, guaranteed revenue from their clients twice a year, plus whatever else pops up. Do, does every cavity need to be filled? Absolutely not. Some cavities will heal themselves as long as you take good care of them. But generally, the response is, oh, have a cavity, let's do a filling. Why? Because they make money. And so I, I think traditions are very often tied into a set of incentives. And those incentives serve somebody, but they may not be serving you. And so by questioning traditions, you are also poking at incentives, which is a whole nother can of worms. That's interesting. I, I think about something like, you know, God, I don't know, Father's Day, Mother's Day, like sure. the card companies. <laughs> Valentine, Valentine's Day. Valentine's. Like, um, absolutely. What about Gift weddings? Weddings? And the wedding industry, I think they make, I think I read that they make an average of like $50,000 per wedding or some shit like that. It's crazy. Well, I mean, weddings, weddings are another religious creation for a very specific purpose. Like what's all, all humans are wired to procreate. So what's one way we can gain control? Well, we can use the story of you're only allowed to procreate if you're married. And the only people who have the power to marry you are us, the church. Therefore, all marriages must go through us. Like it, so they it's gate a, it's kept, a, they gate kept sex. Uh, yep. <laughs> yep, it's, it, that's exactly what they did. And it's, you want to bang? A you gotta, you gotta go through us, bitches. It was a power play. And why, why is it that the Catholic Church is against contraception? Because the easiest way to grow their ranks and make more money is to have more people raised in the tradition. And so, why wouldn't you have contraception in place? There's tons of these. They're, they're, they're all over. You start poking at any tradition, anything that's been a rule or a way of doing things for a significant amount of time. There are incentives in there, and there's really good reason to poke at them. So, yeah, I feel like, I feel like a lot of these life lessons sort of come back to view things through a skeptical lens, question things. Don't just be a drone. Don't just be a sheep and like accept everything as it is. Question reality question. And that's a, yep. Yeah. Tradition. That's, that's another one of mine, which is question absolutely everything. Rules, authorities, tradition, like don't accept anything at face value. You you should poke at everything. And the reason the reason that we don't by default is because it's cognitively intensive to to do so. It's very difficult to carefully think through everything and poke at everything. It uses a lot of mental resources. And the brain has made you know enormous trade-offs to be more efficient. Despite its diminutive size, two or three pounds, it takes up 20 to 25% of your caloric uh, load. Like it's, it's ridiculously hungry for its size. And that's despite all of the tremendous trade-offs that it's made for efficiency. So it's very hard to actively do this process and your brain will be extremely resistant to it for, for that reason. It's resource intensive. So I, I think that's the reason why it isn't typically done. But I do think it's worth it's worth the resources. It, it wasn't worth the resources back when the brain was making those trade-offs 50,000 years ago, but it's worth them now. Yeah, uh, makes sense. All right. Well, let's see. I've got a few life lessons left here to, to bestow upon my younger self. Um, first one. All right. First one is going to be treat your body nicely because I'm finding I'm 34 turning 35 this year that the older I get, the faster I age. Like I feel like every day I've got a new, you know, pop or crick or whatever, when I stand up or if I move a certain way, something wants to pop or, you know, even just like sitting cross-legged on the ground for, for two minutes and then standing up and I, my muscles are like, what the hell that sucked, you know? And it's, it's like, man, I never used to feel that way when I was younger. And what I'm finding is that I have to really work to, um, to maintain sort of the machine that my body is. And what I mean by that yeah. is I, I need to maintain, I need to treat it like, like it's a machine, give it, you know, oil it up, main, give it, maintain it, give it the proper fuel, um, exercise it, keep it running smooth, you know, take it in for, for routine checkups and so on. Like, yeah, barring, barring really rare exceptions, I think good sleep, good diet and good exercise will solve most 
physical problems and mental problems, like rare exceptions. Yeah. Yeah. You might be right. So I'm just, your body, I mean, this is what you've got for your whole life. And if you fuck it up, you, you have to live with that. And so I, I try to treat my body like it is like my life depends on it because it quite frankly, it does. (laughs) So, you know, I, uh, I, and I want to be healthy and happy for as long as I possibly can in, you know, what I believe is, is the one life I've been given to live. And so I think if I could go back, I would take it a little more easy on the drinking and I would, you know, focus more on, on physical activity and exercise. I would be conscious about my posture because, as a 34 year old now I, I deal with I've talked about this on the show I deal with a lot of neck back and shoulder pain especially when I get stressed and um, it's just something that I have to deal with who knows maybe it's maybe it's because of when I was younger I had poorer posture or maybe it's just the way that my body holds stress I don't know but in any case I do find that that physical exercise activity and all that really does make me feel better so agreed um, all right bang out a couple more um, confidence is key to basically everything. <laughs> I, 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 I really feel like confidence comes into play so much in life it's starting as from a young age and going on to a, well into adulthood, the more confidence you have, essentially the more respect it seems you have, the more doors it opens for you. People believe you and trust you. And I, I hate to say this, Sam, but I think you might know what I'm about to say, but I think that the only reason Donald Trump is in office is because he projects so much ridiculous confidence (laughs) and people are fucking sheep and they vote for it because they, they perceive that confidence as strength and authority and leadership, which it is not, let me say, but it is, uh, certainly I think why he is in office for better or for worse. Dude, he's a he's a good actor. That's it. Like that's 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 his skill set. He's a he's a entertainer, and he he buys his own bullshit. So he comes off as very as very confident. Yeah, I agree. I think confidence is very persuasive, but I would also say beware of it. You know, don't don't get yourself in over your head and make sure you're using it in the right way in the right places. Like it's a tool; it can be used, but. Yeah, I mean, better to be confident than not confident. Just make sure you're intelligent enough to be confident when you know something and not confident when you don't. Yeah, don't be one of those dumbasses who thinks you know everything because you don't know shit. It really, it, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And I think that a lot of times people that are so dumb, like they believe so firmly what they believe because they don't, because there's so much more that they don't know. They don't even have the context to understand how uninformed they are. And so that's yeah, why that's they fair. believe so firmly what they do. <laughs> you know, the Dunning, the Dunning Kruger effect. Yeah. The, the majority of people believe they are above average. <laughs> yeah. Which is obviously ridiculous. So I'll just, um, unless you've got one, any more, Sam, I've just got one more life lesson. Well, do your, do yours and then I'll do my last one. All right. So it would be to start something now and be consistent with it, even if it's just small daily increments. So because over time, those daily inputs of progress that you make will add up to something much bigger. This can be starting a business, you know, or maybe just blogging once a day, or if you're Jerry Seinfeld, writing a single joke per day. And at the end of 365 days of a year, you'll have a whole year's worth of jokes that you wrote. For me, learning German. I'm learning German every day and I spend 10 minutes practicing German. And one thing I wish I would, I, that I want to start doing, uh, which I'm going to make myself do it, is practicing guitar on a daily basis. Even if it's just 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, if I do it every day for a year or for two years or three years, I'll look back at the end of that one, two to three years, and I'll see this enormous progress that I've made just by putting in a little bit every day. And so this was the the core message of the book Atomic Habits was essentially that you can apply the idea of compounding into mm-hmm. virtually any any area. I agree with that. That would be a, a very good lesson to have known at a younger age. Yes. So that's it for my life lessons. What what about you? What do you got? Honestly, I think my last one would be to more more a line of thinking. I wish I had gotten into psychology and neuroscience at a younger age so that I could have understood what makes people tick. Because there's this belief in the world that people are rational actors, and it's patently false. The vast majority of people are not doing anything rationally. They're operating on autopilot. They're not actually consciously thinking through most of their decisions and actions. 
And, and that, that is what is operating in our world. So if you're looking around and you're thinking, well, that doesn't make sense. That's not logical. Why is it that way? It's, it's like, it's that way because most people are irrational. And looking at things through that lens can make a lot of things that don't make sense make sense. And so I, I can't tell you the number of times over my life that I've been like, why the hell? Like, that's stupid. Why is it like that? That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And it makes sense. It, it does. If you think from an irrational perspective and you start looking into all of the cognitive biases and little pieces of the puzzle that people, that make people tick. And so I think the, the lesson I would take back would be as early as possible, start understanding psychology and philosophy, like dig into what makes people tick and the nature of things and understand. <laughs> if you understand that, if you understand how the pieces of the puzzle are actually functioning, what they're actually like, you can start assembling much more interesting pictures and mental models of reality. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I used to think that the majority of people were as a whole rational. I no longer believe that. I really do think it's a minority of people are rational thinkers and behave in ways that aren't subject to um, extreme cognitive bias. I really, I really yeah. like that. And so it's, it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother can of worms. Cause I mean, we still, I still don't think we grasp all of the pieces of intelligence, but my, my guess is just some people are running with more horsepower. I don't think IQ is the right measure because it's very narrow in what it looks at, but essentially some people are capable of more mental processing than, than others, whether it's that their brains are more efficient or they're larger, or they have more, you know, neuronal connections. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the reason is, but a very small percentage of people seem to be very capable of recognizing and overcoming their cognitive biases, all these shortcuts that the brain is taking. Like some people are able to shortcut that. And it seems to be those people that end up actually driving the world forward. <laughs> and everybody else is just plodding along, chewing the grass and following the herd. I, I think you're right. And by the way, I think that anybody who is listening to our show is definitely one of the smart ones, one of the ones who has the higher horsepower. So props to you. If, I hope so. if, if, <laughs> if they stick, if they stick around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Only, only if you stick around. Oh, <laughs> right. <and subscribe>. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding everybody. Although we do love your subscriptions. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, I, I, the problem is like, I am, I am very intelligent and I knew that at a very young age, like I, I, I always stood out. I was always a challenge. My parents would take me into psychologists, psychiatrists, trying to understand, like, why is he different? Why is he like this? And the reality is, well, he's extremely intelligent. And I knew that at a young age, but I didn't understand. I didn't understand. I didn't understand exactly what that meant. And so I, I made, you know, essentially the same mistake that most people do, which is projecting outward from your perception and assuming the rest of the world operates in a similar fashion. <laughs> And it's very much not the case. And it took me a very long time that, to realize that looking at the world from a position of high intelligence is a completely different experience from what the average person is experiencing. And I don't mean this to sound superior. It's just, it's different. I have no control over it. I was born, I was born with it and I've taken a damn long time to figure out how to like navigate it. I still don't think I have it all down pat, but it, it does. It puts me, it gives me a very different perspective and unfortunately, it's also made me realize that the world isn't optimized for people like me. Like I am, I'm such an outlier that a lot of things that are just normal, everybody else takes for granted are like grating. They're extremely grating for me. And so I wish as a, as a kid, I could have understood why. And I think understanding a lot more about psychology, neuroscience, mental models, philosophy, I think I could have had a better grasp on that at a younger age and perhaps have done things very differently. I spent less time banging my head against the wall, so to speak. Well, I think that's that's good advice for all of our listeners because it's a it's a known fact that all listeners of the entrepreneur cast are also well highly above average intelligence. And so we we we're all stable we, very stable geniuses. We're all stable <laughs> we're all actual stable geniuses, Sam. So, yeah, well, you know, th thank you for being part of the club. Uh, dear listeners of of high intelligence, we, you you know what Sam you know what Sam means when he says <laughs> life is different for us. We you get it. So um, yeah, I'm so, out. I mean, I'm life lessons. What yeah. about you? 
there's probably a million more. I mean, I, I'll link to a, a post that I wrote a while back, tongue in cheek. I named it like Sam's Life Lessons, uh, 42 Lessons for Life, the Universe, and Everything. So there's a handful in there. And then really, like my book, Screw the Zoo, is kind of an encapsulation of, of my, my thinking at this point. Yeah. But I, I, would, I would probably send those things back in time to myself and send yourself your own those. book, right? Send you, send yeah. your 18 year old self, Screw the Zoo, have, have him I mean, read that, it. That, that was actually what I was doing as I wrote it. I wrote that book to my younger self. Like if this is all, these are all the things that I wish I'd known when I was a kid. So I could have navigated life in a very different fashion. Well, I've read it. I've read it. It's a super interesting and insightful book. And I like there's, you have like a lot of exercises and mental sort of uh, processes that you go through in that, in that book, which are uh, really eye opening. So highly recommend. Thank you. Cool. Well, does that cover it then? That's it. Awesome. Well, as always, everybody, thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Feel free to get in touch with us. Let us know what you thought about this episode or any others on uh, Twitter. You can find us both there or LinkedIn, or you can shoot us an email at theentrepreneurcast at gmail.com. And as always, if you found this interesting or entertaining or something else that is share worthy, let your friends know, like it, rate it, leave a nice five-star review for us help us reach more people so that it's uh, it's worth it. I guess it, to be fair, it's worth it if even one person listens to this and gains something from it, but I'm all about leverage. I think Jason would agree. So the more the merrier. Shit, it's worth it for me even if nobody listens to this, Sam, because it's, 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 it's fun to have these conversations. But, <laughs> but it's even better when, uh, when our listeners also find uh, our conversations interesting and valuable as well. So bonus. Better with friends. Better with friends. Yep. Thanks, guys. See you next time. 